Achieving net zero emissions sometimes sounds like an unachievable dream. With the political football of climate policy and the current reliance on gas and coal-fired electricity sources, you'd be forgiven for becoming despondent about Australia ever getting to net zero. But at least in the electricity sector, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications. With me is Tony Wood, Energy and Climate Change Program Director, and James Ha, Associate, to talk about their new report, Go for Net Zero, a practical plan for reliable, affordable, low emissions electricity. This report discusses the future of the national electricity market, which insiders just call the NEM, and provides a very practical and achievable plan for how the NEM can get to net zero emissions by the 2040s. So Tony, is this too good to be true? The answer simply is no, but it is true. In the spirit of Grattan's approach to trying to crack hard problems or bust myths, we set out to run the numbers on this question and challenge what are two opposing myths. One is that we need big baseload coal-fired power stations if we're going to keep the lights on, if we're going to keep our cities running, if we're going to keep our homes and businesses provided with reliable electricity. The other opposing myth is that, well, all we have to do is build a whole lot of wind and solar farms, connect them with a few batteries, and that'll be fine across the entire NEM. Now, that is simply also very difficult to do. And when we did the numbers, we found that whilst solar and wind are very low-cost energy, to back them up becomes challenging. Our analysis actually shows that neither of those myths is true. We wouldn't say that's good or bad. That's just the facts of the matter. And um, that's what we're interested in. So it wasn't to us surprising. In fact, when you understand the numbers that underpin our analysis, it's almost obvious that the, what the challenges are likely to be. And importantly, to demonstrate that we can make a transition to a low emissions future, we don't have to make outrageous assumptions. I think that's equally important because it's easy to say, well, we'll just assume in 30 or 40 years' time something else will happen and it'll be fine. It may, but it may not. So let's have a plan B just in case plan A doesn't work out. Yeah, look, and I don't think hoping for something to change in the future is a pretty good plan A. So I think plan B should be plan A. (laughs) So James, before we get too far into the report, just so we're on the same page, what does the NEM actually do? Sure. So the NEM supplies nearly 90% of Australians with most of their electricity, although it doesn't cover any of Western Australia or the Northern Territory despite its name. Uh, And there are a few steps in how the NEM gets power to you. So electricity is made at power stations, and traditionally these were coal-fired or gas-fired or hydroelectric. Uh, But today they're increasingly solar, wind, or even batteries. And the operators of these assets bid into the market and dispatch their electricity when needed. And that power is then transported from where it's made to cities and towns using high voltage transmission lines. And then within cities, uh, the local distribution networks get power to the homes and businesses. But today, many consumers also get some of their electricity from outside the NEM by making and storing it uh, using rooftop solar and home batteries. But they almost always remain connected to the NEM as a backup. So whether we knew it or not, the NEM is actually quite integral to our daily lives. So as part of the report, you ran some pretty hefty models through the University of Melbourne's computer system. Take us through those three scenarios you ran and what you found out. So we tested three possible futures for the NEM. And in our first scenario, 
we imagined that you would keep the same amount of coal-fired generation capacity in the system, which would require rebuilding old coal-fired power stations with new ones when they're retired. And this is not something that we expect to happen in reality. But it was necessary to test this to give us a point of comparison for our other scenarios. So in the second scenario, we imagined a partial transition away from coal uh, with about two-thirds less coal capacity. And this is replaced mostly by renewable energy which would supply about 70% of the electricity traded in the NEM. Uh, and in our third scenario, we considered a system after all coal-fired power stations have been retired uh, with 90% renewable energy and a limited role for gas. And we built our model to find what mix of technologies could satisfy the criteria of each scenario while ensuring reliable power supply. So to make sure the electricity supply would be reliable, we used nine years of hourly weather and electricity demand data from across the NEM. And that's a lot of data. And it helped us to make sure that our capacity mixes would meet consumers' expectations in a wide range of operating conditions. The model then determined the long-run cost of supplying electricity with each mix. Um, and this is not the same as the wholesale price of electricity for a few reasons. The main one being that we include the cost of building new transmission lines in our modeling, whereas transmission is added to consumers' bills separately to wholesale electricity costs. But what we found is that over the long run, supplying reliable electricity with mostly renewables was both achievable and affordable. So the 70% renewable mix was a very similar cost to the mix where we maintained coal, but with way fewer emissions. So for comparison, the NEM produced about 142 million tons of emissions last year. In our coal-based scenario, where we envisioned that old coal plants would be replaced with modern ones when they're retired. That had reduced emissions a little bit to about 115 million tons per year, but the 70% renewable scenario would slash this to just 45 million tons of emissions per year. The 90% renewable mix was even more interesting. So it was a little bit more expensive to achieve than the 70% mix, but it had very low emissions at just 10 million tons per year on average, which is about 93% less than what the NEM produces today. Um, now, in terms of what this cost difference means, uh, to go from a coal-based system to the 70% renewable one, you'd be eliminating 70 million tons of emissions per year for a cost of about $7 per ton, which is a massive amount of emissions abatement per year and cheaper than the federal government is getting for abatement from its Climate Solutions Fund today which contracted about 7 million tons um, at its last auction at a cost of about $16 a ton. Now, if, if we were to go even further and move from 70% to 90% renewables, we'd be cutting out another 35 million tons of emissions per year at a cost of less than $40 a ton. And $40 a ton is still pretty cheap abatement by global standards. So in the European Union, where they have a carbon price set by a market, the cost of emissions abatement rose to about $67 or $67 Australian dollars per ton last month. And in Canada, where they have a carbon tax set by the government, they plan to raise that to about 180 Australian dollars per ton by the end of the decade. So that means that as our existing coal-fired power stations retire, moving from a coal-based electricity system to a renewables-based one is a pretty low-cost way to take a huge chunk out of Australia's emissions. 
And that's one of the things I loved most about this report is that this model provides that really strong evidence base for why it's actually a really practical solution to move more towards renewables. And, you know, it's going to keep maintain the low cost and the reliability and still lower our emissions. And it's something we've been calling this trifecta. Now, before we move on to just talking about, a bit more about renewables, I want to just ask you, I mean, you plugged in nine years of data into this model. How long did it take you to process all that information? <laughs> uh, well, there's, there are definitely a few months involved in in putting the model together and, and writing the code. And then we kind of just took advantage of all of the spare computing capacity, both around the office and, and some, of, some of the available resources from the University of Melbourne. And I think particularly because students went on campus for a lot of the last 12 months, it meant there was a lot of spare computing power around and, and available for us to use. Yeah, I remember at one point, I think my computer had been absconded with uh, to run electricity models. So you were definitely using all the computing power that you possibly could in the office. So renewables are all well and good, and they sound like a great thing. But I mean, there's a very practical problem with renewables. What happens when the sun's not out and the wind's not blowing? Sure. So you're right that renewables are an intermittent source of power. Uh, and that means they have to be firmed or balanced so that there's electricity available uh, at night or when there's not much wind. Uh, and we achieve this in a few ways. Firstly, storage has a role to play. So grid scale batteries are coming down in cost and they look like they'll have a really important role in balancing the daily solar cycle where they'll charge up during the day when there's plenty of solar energy available and then discharge when the sun goes down. Pumped hydro projects have been getting a lot of attention lately as well. So that's where you pump water uphill when energy is available and cheap, and then let the water back down again to, to run a turbine uh, when the NEM needs power. And these might have a role as well if they can be developed economically. Second, more transmission can help us to take advantage of Australia's regional diversity. So the NEM is one of the longest interconnected power systems in the world. And that means that it's usually not still and cloudy everywhere at once. So strong connections between the states of the NEM look like they'll help us to get to higher renewable shares at lowest cost, because then each state can export more power when they have excess renewables and then import more power at other times. And this reduces the amount of generation infrastructure that each state needs in order to maintain reliability. Third, and, and this is the hard part, is how we manage an emerging winter problem. So we know today that the NEM struggles uh, quite often on hot summer afternoons when everyone turns their air conditioners on. But on average, even today, uh, electricity demand is actually higher in winter than summer because of all of the extra demand for heating. And yet, as we're now experiencing heading into winter, uh, there's fewer hours of daylight available, which means less solar energy available. So if you throw in a few consecutive days of low wind on top of that, then it gets hard to balance a high renewables system. Uh, and these situations where you have low wind, low solar and high demand for several days in a row, they're rare. And they're much worse in some years than others. But preparing in case of these events means we'll need a lot of dispatchable capacity to firm the system. So using storage alone looks like a really expensive way to do this, given that the tough conditions can persist for a week or more. And neither batteries nor pumped hydro projects can last that long. And even if they can, they need to be full right at the start of a tough period, which the operator of that asset might not be able to predict. Another option that's often discussed is demand response, which is where consumers voluntarily reduce their demand when supply is tight. And today, aluminium smelters often do this to help us ride through 
hot summer afternoons, but they can only turn down for a few hours. They can't switch off for days at a time. And in future, many consumers would be reluctant to reduce their demand for several days. You know, consumers won't want to go a week without charging their electric vehicle. So what we really need to solve this winter problem is a solution that's cheap to build and very flexible even if it's expensive to run. And that's because what we need is backstop capacity. So something that will only produce electricity for a short amount of time each year, say a week or two here or there, uh, but is ready to go at any time if we need it. And that means it has to have low capital costs because the investors won't have many opportunities to earn revenue. But when it does operate, uh, the wholesale price is likely to be really high. So even if it's expensive to run this asset, it should easily recoup its running costs and then some. In the medium term, gas is the obvious candidate, or possibly even having a reserve of, of diesel that we only use once every few years for extremely bad weather events. And that's because gas turbines or engines are much cheaper to build than coal-fired power stations or pumped hydro systems. And gas or liquid fuels are much easier and cheaper to store for long periods than zero emissions alternatives like hydrogen or storing electrons in batteries. Over the longer term, uh, zero emissions hydrogen could well be a good substitute for this role if and when the costs of making and storing it start to fall. But there's a quite, a bit, quite a bit of uncertainty around how quickly the costs will come down. So even if the federal government's target of $2 per kilogram hydrogen is met, that would still be a bit more of an expensive energy source than gas is today. But other analysts like those at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they're very optimistic and estimate that costs could fall to $2 a kilogram as soon as 2030 and then fall to about $1.20 a kilogram by 2050. So I certainly wouldn't rule out uh, a role for using hydrogen in, uh, in the future. In the 90% renewable scenario that we modeled, we firmed our electricity supply, our renewable supply with batteries for short-term fluctuations, plus some help from the existing hydro dams in the NEM, like the Snowy Scheme and, and Tasmania's hydro system, and then gas to help us get through the really tough combinations of weather patterns that happen from time to time. But this is not an expanded role for gas. So the amount that we used in our modeling was no larger than what has been used in the NEM over the past decade. Thanks, James. And before we turn to you, Tony, we do have a number of podcasts in our back catalogue, particularly digging into this issue of gas and the gas-led recovery and hydrogen as well. So you can check them out on our podcast channel. Now, Tony, I do want to talk to you because like all climate policy, there is a fair bit of political conflict when it comes to these topics. This report is interesting because it does tread the line between two political sides. Those who are calling for a gas-led recovery while extending the life of coal-fired power plants, and those who call for a target of absolute zero emissions with 100% reliance on renewables. Why do you recommend aiming for net zero and not absolute zero emissions? And I guess what's the difference there? There are many things we do in life where we start doing something and we try to get better and better at it. But of course, the better we get, the harder it is to achieve the next bit. Anyone who's ever tried to run faster and faster um, knows that the, every little extra bit, it gets harder. And so as James has described, we can see a situation in which we can get 90% renewables and with no, no significant impact on affordability or on reliability, which is what people are interested in. But as we, as James has described, as we get to the last 10 million tonnes, getting them out of the system is getting harder. The source of those last few million tonnes, of course, is that gas that's being used for relatively short periods of time on average. So what can you do about that? Instead of aiming for zero in the electricity sector, recognising, by the way, of course, that there are other sectors of the economy 
where we won't have yet, we haven't yet made a lot of progress at all, and we should really be starting to focus on them. In the gas sector, in the electricity sector, what it might make sense to do, rather than try to drive out those last 10 million tonnes in the short term at least, we should think about offsetting those emissions by taking activities in other areas. Now, these are areas where they would be likely lower cost and they'd have the same environmental benefit as taking out the emissions in the electricity sector, at least for a while. These are called offsets. They need to be um, real offsets. That is, we've got to be saying we are taking CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. Um, some of these things are involve agriculture, such as capturing the CO2 and embedding it in what's called soil carbon. That is, re regenerating our soils in Australia, which have been depleted over hundreds of years of agricultural practices. And so uh, there's some credibility here. A lot of organisations, including the government, talk about net zero. And what they usually mean is we won't actually stop committing completely. We'll offset some of those emissions someplace. So for a while, we think net zero is an appropriate way to go for the electricity sector. Now, of course, if the facts change, then we'll change our mind. And so what we have to allow is for a couple of things. Firstly, one is that the technologies that James was talking about, those technologies that would achieve absolute zero, will improve. New things will be developed in the next 10, 20, 30 years, which will help us get not just to 90%, but 92 and 94 and 95% and so forth, maybe 100%. Also, as all the other sectors of our economy look to achieve low emissions, they may also want to buy offsets. So you run out of offsets. You can't offset your way to zero. And so the cost of those offsets may start to increase. So it's important for the government to support the development of low or zero emission technologies at the same time as keeping an eye out for what the cost dynamic is between offsets and zero emission technologies, because that world will change. Uh, at the moment, our best information says net zero for now. Let's see how things go in the future. So, Tony, one of your proposals is a single economy-wide emissions price. Is this a carbon tax in disguise? And how difficult politically would that be to achieve? The thinking behind this uh, concept is that language has become very important in the world of the, of the climate war. So whether something is described as a tax or a carbon price or carbon trading seems to determine whether it's acceptable, whether it can be effectively, certainly in economic and in environmental terms, effectively the same thing. Infamously, the Abbott uh, in opposition, Tony Abbott in opposition, was able to label an economy-wide emissions price that the Gillard government had introduced as a carbon tax. And axing the tax became one of the key three-word mantras of his successful election campaign back then. So in some ways, the answer is yes and no. I mean, what we're basically talking about is putting an economy-wide price on an environmental problem and trying to see if we can help the market across our economy, deliver a better outcome. Because of that history, it's become very difficult politically for both sides of politics to embrace what we would describe as first best policy. Now, we can have a debate for a long time about the ideology of that. That's not the business we're in. We're in the business of saying, okay, if that's the world we're in, let's see how we can make some really real, tangible progress in a direction that actually works and hope that in the meantime, we'll gradually get over that ideological or political problem with what we call carbon pricing or carbon taxes, recognising that we already have a number of programs introduced by the coalition government that generate their own carbon prices, but of course they're not described that way. So pragmatically, we accept that an economy-wide carbon price is not on the agenda. So the things we're looking to do would be things that recognise that, accept that political reality, 
and put forward proposals that are acceptable, that would help us move in the right direction, uh, even if though they might not be first best policy. So perhaps the biggest hurdle here to achieving net zero emissions in the NEM is the indecision or the conflicting priorities of the state and federal governments, which creates confusion in the industry. What's the first step here to creating a clear plan forwards? Well, one could be extremely challenging and say, well, the first thing we should do is blow up the entire federal system, but I don't think that's very constructive either. It's worth unpicking just a little bit how we got here. I think it's well known that the current federal government has been unable to deliver a national emissions reduction policy that's stuck. And that, by the way, that also includes, to some extent, the Labor side of politics. Now, in the absence of a federal government being able to set and deliver a national climate policy, what that did is give the space in some ways the free ride for the states and territories to occupy that space with their own policies, which almost entirely have focused on the electricity sector and more renewable generation in the electricity sector and sometimes hang the consequences. And because they've done that, that then opened up in a space on the other side for the federal government to criticise the state governments for not taking into account the consequences of driving for renewables without considering the consequences. And so the Commonwealth government talks about having to build dispatchable capacity, mainly in the form of gas. So you've got this rather unedifying discussion going on in which basically they're blaming each other for what is becoming a bit of a mess. From our perspective, I think the first step is to accept that we have a political reality. That means two things. Firstly, we are stuck with what we call a sector-based approach. That is, having an economy-wide carbon price, which would be the most efficient way to find the lowest cost opportunities across the economy to reduce emissions, is beyond us for now. Therefore, we'll focus on doing what we can best do within the individual sectors, including the one we're focused on in our report, which is electricity. The second thing is to accept that in the electricity sector, will be and will continue to be for some little while most likely driven by state-based renewable energy policies. And that's acceptable. Let's move on with that. Even though, again, may not be the first best policy, that's the world we're in. In that world, the one bit that has to then be thought about is how do we make sure that we we invest in those sort of things that James was talking about, the dispatchable capacity, the storage, the transmission, which complements and balances the system to ensure it remains reliable and affordable, even as we introduce more and more renewables. The Energy Security Board, which is a creature of government, has the task of designing the market mechanisms to deliver that dispatchable capacity. That's where governments together, federal and state, really now defeat to focus their strengths and their work to make sure that that system works alongside the programs put in place by state governments to drive down renewable energy. Because if we do that, then we will achieve a very low emissions electricity sector and we'll do it when in a situation where the lights do stay on, the power does remain reliable, and it also remains, importantly, affordable. Thank you so much, Tony and James, because you've both done such detailed work into this excellent and practical plan forwards for how Australia's national electricity market can reach net zero emissions. If you'd like to read this report, it's available for free to read online at our website, grattan.edu.au. We'd love to keep talking with you about the issues raised in today's podcast. You can chat to us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. As always, take care and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>